I remember in 2006, Brother Jim Azenstein shared with a group of us uh, some recordings from a revival movement that took place in Wales uh, that really had an, a phenomenal impact on, on Christianity in the early part of the 20th century. And I remember that one of the, uh, some of these gentlemen came later on in the 20th century, but some of them were from fairly early. And I remember that one of them made a powerful contrast that has been speaking to me again these past two weeks. And he contrasted humanism and Christianity. And his, his main point, his main concern, was that he felt like the church had been co-opted by humanism and that this, this philosophy and system of the world was masquerading in plain sight in the church. And I've been dwelling on that and talking about that and sharing about that the last two weeks. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. I put a title, I never know if I'm going to use these or not, more often than not I don't, but I put a title at the top that just said, Idolatry versus Worship. Maybe that frames the issue a little bit, but let me get into this. I want to talk about humanism. So I was doing some research on Conrad Grable, and I found out that he was actually studying at the University in Basel. He was actually studying under the most notorious, under the most famous uh, humanist philosopher of that time. And that all the way back in the 1500s, it was really gaining ascendancy. It was really gaining momentum in the universities. I don't think the term was coined until the 1800s, but the, the concept of, of humanism was well afoot in the 1500s. But it was powerful to me that this founder of the Anabaptist movement, this founder of what is called the Radical Reformation, Restorationist Christianity, that he began by studying the philosophy of humanism. So I got a dictionary definition of humanism and I want to give it to you as an introduction. Quote, Humanism is an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings and emphasize common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. I thought that was a fairly succinct definition and I thought that it was interesting that in the opening line of this first definition it says that humanism was a system of attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. So the very system of thought itself is in counterposition, it's an answer to Christianity. The encyclopedia puts it this way, quote, in modern times, humanist movements are typically non-religious movements aligned with secularism. And today, humanism may refer to a non-theistic life stance centered on human agency and looking to science rather than revelation from a supernatural source to understand the world. Ever seen a book in the Hallmark rack or in some bookstore that had this guy with a big fake smile on the front that said, how to be a better you or something like that? How to improve yourself in 12 easy steps Something like that. Ever seen those? Well, that's humanism. We all recognize, humanists and Christians recognize that man is in need of help. 
And humanism believes that man can achieve that help, that first of all, man's concerns should be the prime concerns of his existence and that he can meet the needs of his, of his life through science and human reasoning, rationalism. Is that pretty much what Christianity holds as well? I think you can't really understand or discuss humanism without discussing something, another more specific aspect of it, which is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is another philosophy or method of trying to arrive at some kind of moral ethic. And utilitarianism also came into popularity at the same time. Utilitarianism, what is the root of the word? Utility. What does that refer to, you think? It's useful. Thank you. Utility refers to usefulness. If it works, use it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So utilitarianism is a philosophy that tries to arrive at a moral ethic without any religious grounding or any appeal to God. And you would find that it is probably the most ubiquitous form of ethic in Western culture today, among, especially among those who are not devout Christians, whether they would know it or call it that or not. This is the uh, dictionary, and their use of the word doctrine does not refer to a Christian doctrine, but just like you would talk about the Reagan doctrine or the Bush doctrine, it just refers to a dogma that they nonetheless hold. Utilitarianism definition, quote, is the doctrine that actions are right if they are useful or for the benefit of the majority. The doctrine that an action is right insofar as it promotes happiness and it holds that the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of human conduct. The greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of human conduct. Everybody basically understand that? All right, so humanism and utilitarianism. And to what extent have they infiltrated our thinking as Christians? Humanism is a system placing prime importance on human interests, needs, and solutions rather than God's, rather than divine or supernatural matters, quote unquote. Okay? That's a big life system. And utilitarianism is what? It's a way of saying that right and wrong are defined by what? Huh? Whatever provides the most happiness to the most people. See, we got it now. All right. They both are centered around an operative word, and that word is happiness. Some would even point that the language in the Declaration of Independence alludes to this. Life, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, here's a little contradiction, and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we could get into the details, get into the weeds a little bit of why utilitarianism breaks down as a moral ethic because the happiness of the majority may not coincide with the needs of a minority. If the Nazis espoused one moral ethic, it was utilitarianism. They boldly espoused utilitarianism with a Nietzschean flavor. So let's just invent a scenario where utilitarianism seems to be fair. 
Well, if, 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 if I come in here and I say, um, you know, who would like me to turn the air conditioner down three more degrees? If the majority says no, well, then I'm not going to do that. If the minority says, uh, please do, I might listen, but I'm probably going to go in favor of the majority. But that's not a moral cho choice. It's an insignificant experience, but it's not a moral choice. But what about if somebody comes, like they did in Nazi Germany, and says, we have limited resources. We only have this amount of wealth in the government coffers. We only have this amount of medicine. Old people require more money to increase a smaller span of happiness, whereas the same amount of money may produce more happiness, more years of happiness, quantitatively speaking, in a young person's life. And so the old are not deserving, as in most socialist medical systems of today, the old are not deserving of as much expense on hip replacements, on wheelchairs. Are you following me here? So do you see how utilitarianism would dictate that we would look at a person's health care and calculate, well, how much longer are they going to be living anyway? If they're 75 years old and they, they, they need a hip replacement and it's going to cost $20,000, should we use this community fund to give them this hip replacement? Yes, it will take them out of excruciating pain, but they're only going to live uh, you know, an average of five more years so we think we won't spend it on that. And that's how Hitler, he took that same principle and his goons and looked at things like um, hospitals for the mentally disabled. And he said, well, let's look at their benefit to society and the expense to society. And we, we weigh that and we say, well, rather than investing in, in something that's not going to provide the, the same benefit of happiness, We'll go ahead and eliminate them. And so they rounded them up and took them and shot them and euthanized them and, you know, so on and so forth. At times even emptied out nursing homes. So utilitarianism is not a very compassionate form of ethics because the majority may be deceived. The majority may fail to recognize that an old person, though they are not working as much or going to live as long, that they qualitatively may complete a community in a way that no one else can, even all the young people and all the Hitler Jugend that's available. Do you understand? So utilitarianism as a system of ethics falls terribly short. But it holds that happiness is the only thing that's valuable and it holds that avoiding suffering and producing happiness is the highest good. So I want to stop right there and just ask this most universal presupposition in Western culture, is it true for Christians? Do we hold that the happiness of an individual is the highest good? Do we hold that suffering is the worst evil to be avoided at all cost. So if happiness is the highest good of humanism, what is the highest good of Christianity? Somebody said meaning. Somebody said suffering. Somebody said laying down your life for your friends. I would not accept suffering because he said, though I give my body to be burned, Laying down your life, you might be alluding to something there, but in and of itself, I don't think that that can be the highest good or else we would all be trying to die. And we're certainly not doing that. What is the highest good for a Christian? Amen. I would agree to that. But in order to understand or accept or agree upon a definition for love... I would move it 
even a little from that. I would say that the highest good for a Christian is the glory of God. Would you agree with that? Because he says in John, whoever keeps the word of God, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So love is subject to interpretation. And there are certain kinds of love that are not the highest good, that are disruptive, damaging. Amen? So I think that ultimately the highest good has to be the glory of God. I think of Jesus' words in John 17, 4, quote, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. We're going to come back to that, but think, ponder that for a minute. Humanism says that the highest good is the happiness of man. Christianity says that the greatest good is the glory of God. And the two are irreconcilable. It is unequivocally true that as humans, as Christians, we receive joy, contentment, grace, love, and ultimately an eternal reward when we give God the glory, honor, and power that he is worthy of. But there is a subtle seduction that can take place that would entice us to do righteousness with the expectation of an immediate, earthly, temporal reward. If we don't watch it, Christianity becomes another platform for humanism. If somebody comes to the church, to the community here, and says, I've never seen friendships like this. I want to come because I want friendships like that. That's humanism. If somebody comes and says, I've never felt security where my children were so safe. I'm going to come so that I can have that. That's humanism. All of those things, God wants to give every Christian friendship. God wants to give every Christian security for their children. It is the Father's good pleasure that we have the necessities for soul and body amply provided. But for a Christian, there has got to be an order of priority of what we are seeking. And we have to understand the difference between a prime product and a byproduct. We have to understand the difference between the priority and the benefit that comes with it. Because ultimately, we are not going to live, we're not going to be able to achieve Christian objectives by pursuing the prime product of the happiness of man. Think about Jesus' words to the disciples. Whoever seeks to save his life. In modern terms, whoever lives by humanism will lose his life. But whoever loses it for my sake and the gospel's he will find it for eternal life. If there are millions of Christians who live as losers while claiming to live by the grace of God, it is because they pursue grace while trying to save their lives. And I don't mean physically preserving their existence. I mean trying to preserve themselves, their egos, their ambitions, their images, and yes, of course, their existence as well. Humanism says that the chief goal of life is the happiness of man, and Christianity says the chief goal of life is the glory of God. The difference is we don't know what really makes for our peace. Nobody does. They think that invading Iraq is absolutely the most important, necessary thing and that it is going to create peace and tranquility and they do it and then the very people who voted for it and propagated it, they then say it was the wrong thing to do. 
Humanism assumes an, an omniscience concerning what makes for people's good that human beings just do not possess. We say, if I do this, it's going to make me happy, but we don't know. It may make us the most miserable we've ever been in our lifetime. So there has to be a dependence that says, God, what I want is your glory. And when it aligns with my happiness, I bless your name. And when you take away, I bless your name. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So there is this trust that says, I don't know what makes for my ultimate good. I remember talking to one of the sisters who is now in the fellowship in New Zealand. The first time I met her and her husband there at Brother Jared's house before he was Brother Jared. And I don't remember the, the complete details of the story, but I remember asking them about their upbringing in uh, in South Africa during a time of violence. And she told about how on Saturday afternoons it was the custom, it was their custom for she and her sister to travel into town to pick up necessities, groceries, and so on and so forth. But she said on one Saturday afternoon they made notification to their parents that they would be going into town to pick up groceries and her father said, don't go. And they didn't know why, but he felt a check. An hour later, he said, okay, you can go now. They headed out into town, and there they saw the vehicle of their neighbors that had been ambushed by a group of hooligans who robbed, beat, and killed their neighbors. And had they gone an hour prior Though they thought that that was what they needed, though they thought that would make for their happiness, God knew and he saw what they could have had no way of knowing or seeing. And in trusting God and in trusting his order, in trusting, in putting the glory of God as realized through the order of their family and putting that first, in, in fact, their happiness was, was realized and preserved. So even if we see that ultimately God has our good in mind, that doesn't translate that I'm going to live my life according to what makes me the happiest because we don't know what makes for our peace. Is that not what Jesus did when he wept over Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, if you had known, even you, in this your hour, what would make for your peace. But see now your house is left to you desolate. Amen. Until you can say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Amen. So we don't know what makes for our peace. This necessitates a relationship where we're speaking to God and we're hearing God speak to us and we're trusting even when we don't understand. If we don't watch it as Christians, we begin to live under this illusion and we begin to judge our lives according to how it makes us happy. Soon, with this worldview, we will come to believe that the world was created for the happiness of man, that Jesus died on the cross for the happiness of man, was raised from the dead for the happiness of man, that heaven exists for the happiness of man, and that we are to obey and be righteous for the happiness of man. Jesus, the world wasn't created for our happiness. Jesus didn't come for our happiness. He didn't die for our happiness, and he doesn't ask us to do his will, his work, to do righteousness for our happiness. He asks us to do it for his glory, and as a result, we will be happy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Happy is the man whose sin is forgiven. We have all of these benefits, but they're not what we're seeking as the prime product. They're what we're rejoicing in as the byproduct to God's work in our life. Thank you, Jesus. The problem with a humanistic Christianity 
What is the problem with it beyond the fact that it's anti-biblical? What is the problem with it? Man is at the center of our lives. So we judge God's activity according to how it makes us happy. We judge other people's behavior according to how it makes us happy. We judge the way he gives gifts to us, the gifts that he gives to us. We judge them according to how they please us. His providential will and unfolding, his plan in our life, it's all assessed according to how it makes me feel. And so humanism and utilitarianism is hijacking Christianity where, in fact, our chief goal should be to bring him glory and to do his will is how we bring him glory, to complete his work, as Jesus said. In this humanistic Christianity, man is still on the throne. And we just see Christianity and our service to God as a vehicle or a stage, a medium for man's advancement. Our flesh, ourselves, we are still our life's reason and motivation. Flesh and self and our will is our highest pleasure and good. And this is just a modified, tricky version of the same selfishness that we were supposed to have repented of when we surrendered to Christ. What is repentance except saying, self, you are no longer on the throne. You no longer call the shots. You no longer decide what is worthwhile or not worthwhile. You no longer set the pace. You no longer dictate according to your pleasures what I do in my life. From now on, Jesus is on the throne. He sets the pace. Love is on the throne because God is love. Love determines the pace. Love determines the what, the when, the how. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We've got to learn to live our lives for that love that is its own reward. There is a happiness or a peace or a grace, a joy, all of the above, that can be had just in the conviction that we're in the will of God. I am able to keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me, the Lord says to us. Now we can't achieve that perfect peace by choosing any path for ourselves. We're going to feel happy at one moment and terribly sad at another. We're going to feel fulfilled at one point and empty and vacuous at another. Thank you, Jesus. We can't achieve that perfect peace for ourselves. But even in the turmoil of living for God, and the ups and downs of having to confront, this isn't how I would have done it. This isn't my timing. This isn't my who. This isn't my when. This isn't my where. But nonetheless, I'm in perfect peace. I have a happiness that transcends my circumstance. I have a joy that is not circumstantial. And that is the conviction that I am in right relationship with God. So he's keeping me in a state of perfect peace even while I'm going through war at times. So he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Peace I give you. Not in this exact sequence, but he says these two things to us. I did not come to bring peace. Don't expect peace. He says, do not begin to think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. But then he tells us, I give you peace but not as the world gives you. He gives us a peace in the midst of turmoil. He gives us a joy in the midst of sorrow. That's how he could say, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It seems awful and paradoxical to think that we would feel joy when we encounter various sorrows. 
But it's only the paradox between flesh and spirit. In the flesh, we're going through it. But in the spirit, we know we're still in God's will. Outwardly, we're fading away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So Christianity says don't live by the flesh or else you're going to die according to the flesh. But if you could get a hold of a connection, a lifeline, a relationship in the spirit, he is able to keep you in perfect peace no matter what you go through. So the psalmist praises God and says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not in the panic that the, that the pagans are in. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Our peace is relational. Our peace is not circumstantial. Our happiness is relational. It is not circumstantial. Thank you, Jesus. Otherwise, we begin to make a bargain with God. We begin to say, God, I'll serve you if it gives me this feeling. I'll serve you if I get to marry this spouse. I'll serve you if I get to go here or live there, if I get to have this job. And I submit to you that there are many in this room who live like this. You have committed yourself to a perpetual state of unhappiness. If you want to live for humanism, there is a world tailor-made for you, and the end thereof is death. If you want to live for the glory of God, give up your plans and say, I don't know what I need. I don't even know what I want. I don't know what makes for my peace. I just know whom I need. I just know whom I want to be with. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to his care until that day. Otherwise, our service to God is a negotiation. I'll give you this, God, if you'll please give me that. God, why haven't you given it yet? God, I thought you were going to give it. I did a study once in the gospel, and I found that Jesus referred to rewards over 60 times in the gospel. I'm not negating that study or what I preached on that. Jesus offers us reward, but it is not rewards as the world gives. He was forthright. He said, peace I give you, not as the world give, gives. So the kind of reward, if you're coming with a worldly mindset and saying, is this making sense for me? You're asking the wrong question. What you need to be asking is what? Is this bringing you glory? Just staying home when my dad says to is bringing you glory because I'm submitting to the order and the honor that you dictated. When you said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me because they don't honor their parents. Well, my heart is with you, Lord, and you're still with me because I'm honoring what you've given. The bargain has already been struck. The exchange has already been made when God looked into our pit of sin that was already plummeting into hell, and he redeemed us by giving his blood as our ransom. He does not owe us an exciting life, a beautiful life, a life filled with all of our fantasies or even happiness. He doesn't owe us anything. He didn't owe us anything, but he gave us everything. God has already proven his love to us. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for worthless, undeserving, hell-bound people. He does not owe us anything. We owe him everything. Because he gives us a chance to be freed from the penalty and bondage of ourselves. 
our ultimate reward is going to be receiving his gift by remaining faithful and making it to heaven. And along the way, our highest joy should be whenever we succeed in bringing him glory by accomplishing his purpose of love on the face of the earth. All of life might be summed up like this. These, three, these four questions. Am I deserving? If so, what am I deserving of? Is God deserving? If so, what is he deserving of? I want you to answer that question tonight. Are you deserving? Are you deserving? Am I deserving? Ask yourself that. Am I deserving of something, God? If you answered yes, what are you deserving of? What about God? Is he deserving? Is Jesus deserving? What is he deserving of? Everything. He's deserving of you. You are his reward. He shall see the reward of his soul and be satisfied. Is not the lamb who was slain worthy of the reward of his suffering? We legitimize his love when we give him everything. And we say, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. All I want to do is what? Glorify God with my body. Not be made happy. Not be made successful. Not be made rich. Not be made powerful. Not be loved by all people. Woe to you when all speak well of you. My only goal is to glorify God. To contribute to his radiant reputation. As we know glory literally means. Four questions. Am, am I deserving? If so, what am I deserving of? Is God deserving? If so, what is he deserving of? If I answer these questions wrong, then the primary purpose and highest good in my life will gradually become fulfilling my desires. And this is the most blatant form of idolatry that could ever exist. When you dedicate your life, your thoughts, your prayers, though we may ask God for anything, when you dedicate your life to the happiness of self, and you expect, you fully expect this atmosphere of godly worship to advance self, you're an idolater. You're co-opting the environment of worship dedicated to God for the advancement of yourself. That's idolatry. You're setting yourself in the place that only Christ belongs. If I answer these questions wrong, then the primary purpose and highest good in my life will gradually become fulfilling my desires. And this is the most blatant form of idolatry that could ever exist. If I am the reason for my own existence, my whole life has become a worship to self. And you know that no covetous person who is an idolater will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.5 5. There is a carnal man for whom God's favor and pleasure is never enough. So the complete sacrifice that we make to God must include throwing this carnal man all his thoughts, feelings, and disgruntlements on the altar and letting them burn as an oblation to the only one who's worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Somebody can say to me, well, I just don't feel what I want to feel. Well, what do you want to feel? That's what I want to know. Do you feel the truth of what God has done for you? Do you feel the conviction of his Holy Spirit? He does not say the Holy Spirit has come into the world to rub men's backs, put pillows under their heads, and let them soak in their own complacency until I come. He said the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. That's its prime purpose. 
of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit's purpose is not to rub your back. He's not here to make you feel good. He's here to give you a purpose, a place in an eternal purpose. And you glorify him when you complete it. So ask yourself, what, do I, what am I wanting to feel? Did you feel the grace of his presence flowing over your life as we worshiped? Did you feel the truth and the love of God when a brother stood up and spoke of the four demons that you could be set free from? Have you felt the conviction of a truth that is from your Lord as you've heard his word unfold to you tonight? Has something turned over in your heart that made you say, God, I can do this. God, I can be different. That's called faith that comes by hearing the word of God. Faith gives you victory over the whole world. So yes, there's a lot that you can feel. Just make sure that what you're not looking to feel is God is my will coming to pass because I know it's, it's of God. <laughs> is my will coming to pass? I don't think I feel the fulfillment that I want. We know what releases the pleasure of God on us because the Bible's not unequivocal about it. It says, bring in the full sacrifice and I'll open the windows of heaven. I think you'll feel something when it starts to fall. Tells Cain, if you do what is right, you're going to feel the favor that Abel felt. But maybe we're the kind of person who we don't even benefit from the realities of spiritual blessings that other people's lives are changed by. Maybe we're so carnally minded that we can't really appreciate even when God is blessing us, even when he is gracing us, even when he is helping us. What do I need to do, God? What do I need to be, God? How do I feel what I want to feel? Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What do I bring him? Notice he doesn't say, what do I give to myself to make me feel good? He says, what do I owe God? What do I bring the Lord? Don't ask God, what are you doing for me? Ask God, what am I doing for you? How am I bringing you glory? How am I making you smile? How am I legitimizing your love? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require, but that you act justly, that you love mercy, and you walk humbly before your God. It's not a mystery. And when we do that with all our hearts, knowing the reason why we're doing it is for his glory and not our happiness, we're going to feel his pleasure. We're going to feel the favor which is translated the grace of God on our lives. Can a Christian assign his own life its meaning? Can a Christian decide for himself whether his life is meaningful? Can we? Or do we have to make a sacrifice and let God reveal whether it's meaningful? And is our greatest sacrifice not the sacrifice of our will in our obedience to him, even when it doesn't make sense according to our infallible perspective. Jesus assigns purpose, fulfillment, meaning to our lives. Can I close with these scriptures? What is the purpose of my life? 
How do I know my life is, is meaningful? How do I know I'm doing God's will? Then they themselves will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not take care of you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Inasmuch as we serve the least of his brothers and sisters, we serve God. We serve him. We do God's will that results in God's glory. It's not a mystery. He's called us to service. And if we can do that to the least, then he's going to get the glory. 1 Corinthians 15, it's not a mystery. God's called us to serve. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be firm, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always being superior, excelling, doing more than enough in the service to God, knowing and being continually aware that your labor in the Lord is not futile. It is never wasted or to no purpose. Somebody says, I want my life to have meaning. God says, serve. Serve the least of these. He says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice and then you will know what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. If you don't know the acceptance, which is the favor and the grace and the happy smile of God in your life, it's because your sacrifice is insufficient. You say, how have I not made a complete sacrifice? When he asked you to give something up and he had to pull it out of your hands instead of you saying, yes, Lord, to your will and to your way, I'm offering it up again. You think your sacrifice is just how late you stay up on a job site, how many hours you put in serving somebody? No, your sacrifice is when God reaches out his hand and says, your will. And you go, uh, uh, or you say, yes, Lord. To your will and to your way, I'll say yes. Do everything without grumbling or complaining that you may become blameless and pure children of God. That means that by grumbling and complaining, we abort our adoption process. By giving up this grudging spirit when God reaches out his hand and says, put it right here. By giving up that grudging spirit and giving it willfully where the heart is willing, the gift is acceptable. By doing that, we are being transformed into sons because that's what Jesus did. When God said, your life, your very lifeblood, put it right here for the sake of my, my children. He said, I'm gonna offer it up as a living sacrifice. And he knew God's perfect and acceptable will. But when we say, oh, well, I guess, all you have to do to make your ordeal meaningless is grumble and complain about it. But when God disciplines you, that's an adoption process because who does he discipline? He scourges every son he receives. But if while he's disciplining you, by changing things, by violating your will, by asking for another sacrifice, asking for another surrender. If that discipline process is interrupted with grumbling and complaints, you never become children of God. You go through discipline, but it drives you out of his house instead of driving you into his house, into his heart, into his presence, into his favor. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. And I hope if you've been praying and praying and praying, you don't, you don't act like God's not answering your question tonight. Because he is. He can help you. He asks you to stop saying that the service you render him is futile. Isn't that what that last line said to us? Knowing and being continually aware that your labor in the Lord is not futile. It is never wasted or to no purpose. Get me out of here, God. I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something powerful. I want to do something special. I, no, no, no. Jesus went 
and subjected himself to his parents in all things, and he grew in wisdom and stature and in grace, in favor with God and man. That's how you do it. Ephesians 6, 7, serve wholeheartedly. Don't say, I don't know how to glorify God. This is how. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. And who is he speaking to in specific right here? Slaves. Slaves. Is Paul condoning slavery? Did Paul like slavery? No. But he didn't think for a minute that the peace of God was circumstantial. He didn't deceive himself for a second that the joy of the Holy Spirit was circumstantial. So he could speak with a straight face to slaves and say, serve wholeheartedly. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know. But the slave says, oh, but Paul, this guy's not even a believer. This is meaningless. I don't know the purpose of this. All I do is wash dishes or all I do is, is scrape out the corrals. All I do is take care of my master. Now all you do is serve the Lord. Because you say, God, this isn't just for this man. I am going to do this as unto you. I am going to serve the least of these, those for whom you've died, as if I'm serving you. And I know it's going to bring you glory. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. The reward is coming. Colossians 3, again speaking to slaves, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He uses the word master, Lord, which is translated master and, and was used for the slave master. So he says the Lord Christ, it'd be like if the slave master's name was, you know, Lord Theodosius or whatever, he puts Jesus in there. And he says, you're serving the master Christ. You're not serving the master who owns you as a slave. Amen. If you don't understand how he could say that, how could we ever be faithful in our easy places of sacrifice that don't equal to slavery at all? Our purpose in life is to serve. Our purpose in life is to seek and inherit God's kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away reserved for you in heaven. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Your salvation hasn't been fully revealed. Your inheritance hasn't been fully given. This isn't what we're living for. If this was all there was, Paul said, if there was no resurrection, we would be of all men most miserable. But we have this assurance not only of the presence of God in our daily lives, but also the hope of the kingdom that we will inherit when this is all over, when our sojourn on earth is over. Jesus said that the purpose for his life was doing God's will. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Somebody says, I haven't been fulfilled. How do you get filled? You put something inside of you, you eat. But he said, my fulfillment, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What if it's a slave? Can he do the will of, of him who sent him? What if he's bound in the house of an unbeliever? Can he do it as unto the Lord and not to men? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And until you get that, you don't get Christianity. John 6 tells us what the will of God was. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but, to the, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's this love service, amen, that beholds the Son lifted to a place of sacrifice. There's a reward in giving God the glory he deserves. To complete the course joyfully, to attain Christian, Christ-like character, and above all else, the purpose of our life is to love. Thank you, Jesus. It fulfills the law. It's the great commandment. It's the big test. It's everything. So what is your life system? What is your philosophy? Humanism or Christianity? The glory of God or the illusory happiness of man? Viktor Frankl said, and I'll paraphrase, he said, happiness is not a worthy goal to be pursued in and of itself. He said, purpose must be pursued and happiness will ensue. But you cannot chase happiness in and of itself. And when we, when we, do the, when we fulfill the purpose of God, we bring him glory. As he said in John 17, thank you, Jesus. Lord, help me to get all this antsy agitation out of my system. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Don't let me abort my adoption process, Lord. Hallelujah. Do you understand what I'm saying when he says, do everything without grumbling or complaining that you may become blameless and pure children of God among whom you shine as bright lights in this generation? Do you understand that he's saying if you grumble and complain, you can't become blameless and pure children of God? The things that would make you grumble, if you can receive them with grace, if you can surrender them and put them in his hand, you're going to become a son of God. You'll endure hardship as discipline, and he disciplines those he loves and scourges every son he receives. I remember standing in a hospital room at 10 o'clock in the morning, March 10th, 2010, and our first baby had just been born, and, and he, was, he never took a breath. And we were gutted and reeling, and we didn't even know how to absorb this. been a long, terrifying labor, and it was just agonizing. And they asked me if I wanted to hold him. And I took him in my arms, and he was perfect. Autopsy revealed there was nothing wrong with him. His face, his lips, his little nose, it was so perfect, his hands. I was holding him there. <sighs> spiritually gasping for understanding. And my dad was standing just out of my peripheral vision. And he was saying, give him to God, son. Give him to God. Give him to God, son. And everything in me wanted to say, how can I give what was already taken? I want you to know, over the years to come, I learned that I had to give what I thought was already taken. When God reaches out his hand, you can say, no, thank you, and he's still going to take it. But if you say, yes, Lord, this also I will surrender. Thank you, Jesus. Then we choose to freely give what death would cruelly take. And our dying grip on love, no pain can ever shake. And I say that God would take, and I mean providence. I don't mean him in a in his personal action, but the providence of the world in the world, the providence of God in the world. And so when something doesn't go your way, those four guys start beating you up. This shouldn't have happened. That shouldn't have been said. I talked to a, I had the privilege of talking to a very mature brother today. He said something that really spoke to me. I was worried, myself and another brother, we were worried that maybe he had been wronged and might be hurt by the actions of somebody. And he said, oh, he said, people have done things wrong, but so have I. And he said, whatever was mishandled, truly it was for my good. And he meant it. He meant it. 
He put it in God's hand. Amen. I say, oh God, I know. I know this man. I know how he thinks. He's a Christian. Any others want to join the camp? Any others want to leave the camp of humanism and utilitarianism and become Christians? Dedicate your life on a new level.